I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. It's roundtable day on the Sports Media Podcast and two regulars are here. Chad Finn of the Boston Globe, Austin Karp of Sports Business Journal. We're going to get into this right away. No fancy intro. Uh, in the words of Bill O'Reilly, we're going to do it live. I'll write it and we'll do it live. Um, and so let's go. Let's start here. Um, there's a lot to cover in sports media. First of all, Chad Austin, thank you for being here. I will give you my theory on why I think ESPN decided to change its NBA booth. Before I do, though, let's start with you, Chad. You had a tweet a couple weeks before this went down saying that you you have good sourcing, that you think that the direction ESPN is heading is Doris Burke, Mike Breen, and Doc Rivers. And as it turned out, that was the case. Now that that... I don't know if the contracts are signed yet. I don't think they are, but this is absolutely the direction we're heading. What's your thought about that new booth and Mark Jackson gone? I guess that maybe that means J.J. Redick will be the number two person, but I'm, I'm not totally sure of that. But, yeah, there was just a lot of buzz back here in Boston about the doc element of it. You know, he, he coached the Celtics for a long time, has a lot of contacts here, and um, there was a, a lot of uh, – well-sourced noise uh, that uh, he was going to end up back in that role and that Doris would be with him. Uh, I love the Van Gundy, uh, Jackson Breen booth, especially the Van Gundy Breen part of it. Uh, I thought uh, Van Gundy is the best analyst working. Um, and uh, it's uh, a guy who's self-deprecating, really knew the game, uh, was skeptical, uh, was hesitant to criticize coaches, but when he did, it carried weight. Uh, I think the reason he's out is in part his salary and in part the fact that the league wasn't thrilled with his constant harping on the officials. That feels like more of a David Stern thing than a Adam Silver thing, but I really believe there's something to that. And I think ESPN's kind of underestimating how well-liked he was. Austin, how did you see this? I First off, kudos to Chad for getting that right. And I also agree that I liked that NBA finals booth. I enjoyed them that just over the years they had developed so well. I mean, Breen is Breen. He's going to be, he's going to bring his A game every time, but Jackson and Van Gunny had developed this almost comedic routine. It, it was like, like Jerry Spiller <laughs> and Ann Mira sort of deal. <laughs> what, what a reference. It was fun to listen to. It had that at times like a Borscht belt sort of feel. It was funny to listen to. They got along and played off each other so well. So I'm a little worried about what the next booth 
sounds like in terms of camaraderie, in terms of playing off one another. Obviously, these are experienced professionals and they're going to, you know, they're going to bring it. I like J.J. Riddick down the road. I agree he may not have been ready for that booth, that big booth just yet, but I do see him in that chair eventually. First of all, that's the first Stiller and Mirror reference on this podcast, Austin, so thank <laughs> you for that in, in 300 episodes plus. All right, so, um, and, and by the way, uh, credit Andrew Marchand, too, for his report, getting it out there. Obviously got a lot of pop on that. So here's my thought, having um, talked to some people now, done some reporting on it. I wrote a column about uh, Doris Burke, um, who I'm very happy to see get elevated. And at the time, like you, Chad, when Jeff Van Gundy got run, I, I you know, I, I said ESPN has made a horrific, terrible decision here, and I absolutely stand by that. I'm a big Van Gundy, uh, Van Gundy mark. My thought is this. One, I know that in terms of inside ESPN, Dave Roberts was really was one of the sort of senior executives there was really pushing for Doris to uh, – to eventually get a bump up. So I think in Doris's case, she definitely had some internal um, internal supporters at ESPN. Obviously, the Jimmy Pitaros and Burke Magnus's world have to sign off that, on this as well. So that's sort of part one. Part two, and this gets to you, Chad. The NBA loves Doc Rivers. They've loved him for a long time. He's had relationships in the league office. I don't know what his relationship is personally with Adam Silver. I would imagine it's good. I know the NBA really likes Doris Burke as well. Uh, she's had long-standing relationships with the league office. Obviously, Mike Breen is a Hall of Famer, one of the great broadcasters of his generation or any generation. While I don't think, Chad, that like Adam Silver here orders the code red, what I do think, though, is that I've talked to enough broadcasters in all different leagues, including the NBA, where the league does vet who goes on its airwaves. The le- league broadcasting office does meet with broadcasters. There's relationships here all the time. And while, yeah, they don't make the formal hire, no one is getting on the airwaves of the NBA or the NFL or MLB without the league office signing off. And I do think, I don't know how nefarious it is, but I do think that, absolutely, Chad, I think the league wanted Doc in there. I think they wanted Doris in there. And I have no doubt that at least some in the broadcasting office probably was getting tired of what they saw as Jeff's shtick. Now, to me, I don't think it was shtick. I think he was incredibly entertaining, honest, and I learned a lot as a as a basketball person. And then finally, Chad, and then I want to just get your take back on after what I'm saying. They're about to they're about to negotiate, right? A gigantic media rights deal for the NBA that's gonna, in theory, be extended a long time. And you want the booth to be a booth that your rights holder partner is going to be happy with as they head forward. I think you add all those different elements to the mix, and I think that's why Jackson and Van Gundy are gone and why this is going to be the new booth. How do you see it? I agree with what you said, Richard, but I I don't agree with the process that uh, the, the NBA and uh, ESPN has taken with this. I mean, there's just, just so much history and in, institutional knowledge with Breen, Van Gundy, and Jackson. Going back to all the years together, that they were in various capacities with the Knicks. They've known each other for decades. That came across on the air. I've got some concerns about this broadcast team. I, I really like Doris, but she got a lot of backlash for the playoffs this year, calling players by the first name. Kind of made it seem like she was uh, uh, had favorites, which she doesn't. I think she's pretty balanced, but um, sometimes her approach makes it seem like she's uh, uh, sort of cheerleading a little bit for one team or another. Uh, I, I think she'd do well 
be well served by just calling players by their last names. Uh, and I don't I, can Doc, can Doc's voice hold up? He, he, he's had this voice issue for almost a decade now. You go back and listen to him during his NBC days; he sounds a lot different. I wonder if uh, if this is going to be su- something that's sustainable for him. Probably will be. I don't think they'd take that risk without being comfortable with it, but. Um, I don't think the chemistry is going to be there right away, and it's certainly not going to be close to what it was with Breen Jackson and Ben Gundy. You know, also that's Chad makes an interesting point, um, and that and that's this: the I, there are people who really like the Breen Van Gundy Jackson team. There are people who didn't. That, that's always going to be the case. All the stuff's yeah. subjective, right? Like I like Doris Burke. Somebody else doesn't. It is what it is. But the one thing that's clear is they had chemistry. Like Van Gundy and Jackson were comfortable enough to joke with each other. Breen was comfortable enough to joke with both. Uh, nobody took offense to that. That's important. And one thing that Chad just pointed out that I'm going to be watching and we'll see if it works. Like, I don't know enough about Doc Rivers to know, like, can Doc Rivers take a joke from Doris Burke and vice versa? Mm-hmm. And I think in terms of, like, the NBA in particular, especially those finals, like, you do need some levity moments. You know what I mean? It can't just be all X's and O's and stuff like that. And that's what gets into what Chad was saying is, like, be interesting to see if that chemistry can hit. All of these people that we've talked about are all stars in their own right, but you hit on it. They, you have to have that chemistry. You have to be able to work together for this to be, this is an entertainment product. And for, uh, for the crowds, for the listeners to be entertained, you, you got to play well off one another. And yeah, I, I agree. I just, I don't know how Doris and doc are going to mesh. Yes. They're pros. Yes. They've done this before. Yes. Doc has recency, but you know, he's been coaching recently. And Doris is an all-timer. I just, I don't know if they're going to talk over one another too much because I, they just haven't flowed. To, they haven't worked together. They just haven't worked together. And I know they'll get the reps, but I don't see it being anywhere near what we've been expecting over these last, what, decades now almost with the, with this crew. I'm going to stick with you, Austin. But Patrick Antonet, that's where you can like drop in Are You Not Entertained by uh, Russell Crowe Gladiator. I feel like we do for <laughs> fair use there and be able to use that drop. <laughs> All right, I want to ask you, Chad, Chad, Austin, I want to ask you about uh, the Women's World Cup viewership. I imagine you have, uh, as we're taping this on Thursday, August 3rd, and again, like by the time you listen to this on Monday, uh, there'll have been games played. But what's your, as one of the viewership experts in the country, what's your analysis of it so far? And here's another thing, and I know you you probably either you've tweeted about it or you'll write about it. Holy cow, did Fox get a terrible break by the U.S. finishing second in the group? Because everything essentially prior to the tournament, Fox had sort of asked for was like, can we get the most advantageous time for the winner of this group? You know, which obviously helps them as best as possible in a in a in a event that's that has time difference issues. I mean, the reality is Australia and New Zealand are what they are. So holy cow, man, that loss. That loss kills, I don't know what exactly the amount of millions of viewers it will cost them, but it's going to cost them. You agree? It's going to cost them big time. And you can see that reflected in just the numbers from the group stage match. You're talking about, what, 6 million viewers for a group stage record when the U.S. played the Netherlands. Then you get a really terrible 3 a.m. window for that last match, which they needed to survive. And it was four, four and a half million viewers less. So that's huge. That is a huge, huge, huge difference that Fox was probably counting on for those potentially prime time windows 
with the U.S. team. But you know, looking at these group stage numbers, oh, for the U.S. team, that's a win for Fox. Two of the three best Women's World Cup group stage matches ever with the U.S. playing in the first game against Vietnam and then the record against the Netherlands. And what kind of impresses me, though, is that third game. Let's talk about that. That was a 3 a.m. East Coast start for that last game. Okay, And it drew 1.4 million viewers against Portugal. That is like 2x, 3x what most men's finals get from the Australian Open in that same sort of window on ESPN. So it's a pretty impressive number for 3 a.m., I mean, that topped even like a five-set Federer-Nadal final from 2017. Like It was 300,000 viewers more than that. So it's a, an impressive number if you think about it in the grand scope of things, 3 a.m. But I agree. You know, Fox put out a number like whatever, you know, whatever the press release they put out or the tweet they put out was something like uh, second biggest overnight of all time or biggest overnight of all time. You know, usually that's like totally a absolute setup to like mock PR offices for the ridiculous spin but i thought in this case like that's not ridiculous like the fact is that is an incredible number for an overnight viewership the problem is it's still the overnight viewership it's still the over yeah you when you have to qualify it as well it's the best thing that we've shown at 3 a.m because we've never shown anything at 3 a.m um yeah that that's that's not good when you're losing four or five million viewers it's not a win for fox at all and if you look at the numbers outside of the u.s team they're down huge. I mean, some of these games are seeing 30, 40, 50, 60 percent drops compared to something comparable uh, four years ago. And that was to be expected. It was to be expected. Some of these a lot of these games, they're airing at midnight, three in the morning. Of course, no one's going to be watching these things. So the, the positive are the takeaways from the U.S. games. And maybe as you get later, if they keep going into the, you know, into the deeper stages, you might make some of that back in the semifinals and the final. But outside of the U.S., there's just not that Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi um, that people want to tune in for or, or you know, even um, Mexico on some airwaves. There just hasn't been that on the women's side. And, and you're going to see a pretty precipitous drop. But, you know, that means four years from now, um, maybe you're going to see a pretty big uptick. These things just go up and down. Absolutely. Given the given the countries that are bidding for uh, the Women's World Cup in 2027, including a U.S. bid. Um, U.S.-Mexico bid. Uh, you're absolutely right on that, Austin. All right, Chad, I want to uh, – I'm not sure how much you've watched of this, but I know you have read the stories on it. Uh, Carly Lloyd has become a point person when it comes to um, this World Cup in terms of getting attention, in terms of uh, people writing about her. She was incredibly critical um, of the U.S. team in the group stage. I think that's great. Like, I, I, I don't know what on earth the criticism would be uh, – to me, she's being as critical as any dude who does, uh, you know, the NFL or MLB um, and probably still even does it lighter than that because she clearly has an affinity for the team. So if you know anything about Carly Lloyd and her background, she's pretty blunt. You may like her, you may not, but she's she's like she's not a, apologetically, you know, she's pretty Jersey. Let's just be blunt on that. And so um, that's been interesting to me, like to see the criticism. I don't know if there's a little gender politics at play there, but, uh, um, David Neal told me before the world cup started, he, he's the point person, uh, in charge of, uh, Fox's world cup coverage. He said she was going to be the breakout star of his broadcasting team. He's turned out to be wh- however you define star. She's absolutely the breakout person of it. How, how have you seen what she said so far? Yeah, it was interesting to hear uh, some pushback from within the U.S. locker room. Lindsey Horan uh, made a comment today or yesterday that 
Carly Lloyd's not in the locker room, so how can she know what she's talking about? Which I think actually reflects well on Carly Lloyd because she was in that locker room really uh, very recently. And uh, for someone to have come off the playing field in such a short amount of time and to be able to be critical of players that she played with and uh, the, the circumstances around that team, it's pretty impressive. Now, I kind of wonder, uh, you know, if there's a hint of uh, shame fruit with her that uh, she wasn't totally thrilled with how her uh, career with the U.S. national team ended, and maybe that's part of the part of her willingness to be criticism, but that uh, be critical. But that's probably not totally fair either. I think this is just more her natural personality that she says what she thinks, and uh, it, it uh, makes for pretty good television here so far as the. U.S. women's team is struggling. She's been very candid about those struggles. So, Austin, I want to get your take on this, just because, like, historically, like, one of the criticisms of the U.S. women's coverage is that it's too much, like, uh, broadcast, you know, it's too much kumbaya. It's, 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 they've had too many people on there who say, like, we, you know, we, 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 as opposed to some independent analysis. And, in that case, I think that's why I think Carly Lloyd's been good. Like she's not so tethered to the um, everything has to be positive. And again, it's not like I agree with everything she's had to say, but I I think that that I think it's actually healthy for the sport to have somebody in that position who's super opinionated and not just always like waving the flag positively on everything. So it's been interesting. The the whole if it's like backlash is the right word, has been pretty interesting. By the way, and then I'll let you go, Austin. I think Carly Lloyd's going to turn out to be wrong because I, I think the U.S. is about to go on a run. So we'll see what happens. But um, I don't know. I, I just, to me, there's no issue. She's doing, I think she's doing her job. That's how I look at it. Well, first off, Chad gets five points for using the word schadenfreude on here. If I'm getting points for using Stiller and Mira, you definitely it has, but I just, just, just to, just to point of order, Schadenfreude has been used many, many times in this podcast. But excellent by oh, only great German <laughs> word. So props to Chad. But um, you know, I am enjoying her, and it's so, like you said, it's so easy to be jingoistic and raw, raw national team um, on these on these telecasts. It's tough to avoid. I think even the best analysts have trouble avoiding it. So, yeah, seeing her step outside of that has been a little refreshing. And we knew this was coming. I mean, Fox, like you said, David Neal saw this coming. He said that she was going to be prominent. They obviously thought incredibly highly of her. Hell, she was at the upfronts selling advertisers. So they clearly had it. They're like, oh, yeah, this, this girl has got it from the start. But this is, again, this is her first, like, this is the first really prime time effort that she's had. She only had a very short run with the team when they were in Cutter. So I think she's going to make a couple of these. I don't know. I don't even know I want to call it a mistake, but like maybe getting out too far in front of her britches sort of deal. Cause she did roll it back. She's like, Oh, I, oh, maybe I, I said something I shouldn't have. But I don't even think she needed to do that. I didn't think the comments warranted that, but I do like seeing her being a little more bold and yes, stepping away from the national team sphere a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I think she rolled it back probably because she got some backlash from probably people she likes and people within those circles. So I get it. There's a lot of a lot of a lot of pressure when that happens. But I'd be with you if I was David Lloyd. I would tell her she did nothing wrong. Uh, we appreciate the candor and like you want that. Like you want if this is what she believes and she to me has absolute standing. She's one of the great players in the history of the country. Like she's got the bona fides to do it. And I, you know. Yeah, like Lindsey Horan, I get it. Like, none of us are in the room, but 
Carly Lloyd has a lot more standing than you know Richard Deitch because she absolutely she actually was in the room once, like at, as a very prominent person in the room. So uh, so I appreciate it. Again, I think it's tough in her position because I'm sure she got backlash from you know people people like you know within the soccer world that that she's in. Um, but but uh, you know I hope at least her Fox people are like telling her like you know you, you've you've done what we've asked here and that's just to be that's just to be honest. I'm sure her agent is pushing her as well. I think she's rep by Josh Pyatt at WME. He's got guys like A Rod, so no nothing you know <laughs> some edgy clients there. So uh, he knows what he's doing in terms of speaking to his clients. Yeah, and by the way, you know what? Uh, I wish Fox was as tough on Qatar and Russia as Carly Lloyd's been on the U.S. Women's team. Okay, so like uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> So Nickelodeon, uh, Chad, I'll st- I'm sorry, Austin, I'll stick with you. Nickelodeon, I think uh, o- Oran had this uh, first, uh, a delicious uh, scoop from the CBS. Uh, Nickelodeon is hosting the first ever alternative Super Bowl telecast this year. They're going to do the, uh, you know, the slime game version of the Super Bowl. I think this is awesome. Like, I think this is a great, great thing. One, um, it's <laughs> on a pure business level, it's going to give CBS a couple extra million eyeballs. So in that sense, it's kind of genius. But more than that, the NFL, finally, we're going to sort of see what an alternate telecast kind of can do and like maybe invest in this. Because by the time, let's say, ESPN gets the uh, gets the Super Bowl, Austin, you know, maybe we will see a Manning cast Super Bowl. I almost think we definitely will. You know, maybe we'll see some alternative channels. I think all that stuff is great for viewers. Like, I, I'm a big believer in, like, give viewers as many choices as they can have because some people like specialty broadcasts. So I I thought it was cool. I actually, I remember uh, when that story came out and then the press release came out, I was like, you know what? It's pretty smart by CBS. Good, good job on them. How did you see it? The NFL has been setting themselves up for this for a couple of years, right? We, we, they had it during what I think the ABC ESPN wildcard game. They've done it with CBS with the slime cast, which was incredibly well received from the talent to the graphics in terms of really attracting a completely different demographic that is going to watch on Nickelodeon. And yeah, it's going to give them a couple extra viewers. They want to top what Fox got last year. They, everybody who gets that Super Bowl wants that record the next year. So this is CBS's effort. And I don't think it's an if when it, ABC gets that Super Bowl. Yeah. It's going to be on three or four different channels and who knows how many channels on on ESPN plus there are going to be feeds coming out your ear. It's it's going to be you know bigger than the CFP championship. Yeah, I was going to chat. I know your uh, I believe your kids are out of the Nickelodeon age group, uh, but uh, you like this idea or no? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes all the sense for them to do. It was as Austin said, so incredibly received. I think they uh, I think they owe a, a debt of original gratitude to Nate Burleson for being so good at it the first time they tried it, and uh, so. Uh, so good with the kids, so uh, having the exact right vibe for the broadcast, which made, really was a factor in it working. Um, I don't know if slime ever gets boring. Maybe it does, but uh, it, it's it's one of those the the Nickelodeon approach is one of those things that uh, seems additive to that certain generation rather than to that specific demographic, rather than uh, um, something that uh, gets in the way of the broadcast. So. I think it's a great idea, and uh, I don't know if it will get tiresome or lose its appeal uh, the more and more we see it, but right now it makes all the sense in the world. We're not going to, I'm not going to spend, I'm just going to do really, really brief on this, Austin, uh, because I'm, you know, I'm going to, when I do the 
sort of the podcast that are specific to ESPN's business or Fox Sports's business. I'll bring more business-oriented people on. That said, I know, Austin, you saw because your publication published it, the the current number of homes that a lot of these cable channels are in. And it's pretty interesting to see that FS1 is now in slightly more homes than ESPN. Again, obviously ESPN gets far more viewership, et cetera. But what this is indicate what what this indicates obviously is a continual decline of these cable channels and households. And having talked to some people in the business, Austin, like the real question is going to be like, what is the floor? And is the floor fifty million? And does it stop? Is it forty million? And does it stop? Um, in very very broad strokes. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to look at the the latest sort of you know what what cable channels households are like. What do you think of that? And again, like, do you have any? You know, I'm not going to hold you to this, obviously, but do you have any big picture thoughts on where like realistically the floor may be when it comes to pay TV viewership in the United States? Well, the first thing is that it, this is across the board. If you're looking at cable sports networks and networks in particular on cable. The slide is just going to continue. I'm not, I don't, I'm not really paying attention. I'm like, oh, did they see any sort of gain? They're not going to see any gain. It's how fast do you get to my, the number that I keep watching for is 50 million on for ESPN. It's the only one I'm really watching when it gets, because when it gets to 50 million, does it make sense anymore with affiliate fees? And that number signifies to me the go time the launch time to move, to start shifting everything to streaming. Yeah. That's the number for me. That's 2025 at the earliest in my mind at the earliest. I mean, there, there are at 71 million now, I think for ESPN. So, and FS1 is only a couple hundred thousand ahead. They continue to slide. They're setting themselves up so that when they get to that 50 million number, and again, this is just my opinion that that's, that's when they start flicking that switch to, all right, we are now a streaming first delivery service. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And I, by the way, I agree with you on the number. And again, just so like the people at home know, that doesn't mean that ESPN, if you subscribe to ESPN cable, you will still get the same um, programs that you get now. You'll still get Monday Night Football and the college championships games, et cetera. What, what it means is that you will now be able to purchase ESPN as a direct-to-consumer product that will have all the things that at the moment are only on cable and then they obviously have to decide what is the price point for that kind of service. Chad, do you have uh, any thoughts? I mean, you know, you live in a big city and you have seen, I'm sure within your own city, uh, the decline of subs for the regional network. Well, you made me laugh at the price point because uh, Nesson was the first uh, R- R- C- uh, RSN to uh, come up with an independent app streaming app for basically major league baseball games. It's the Red Sox and the Bruins here. And their price point was $30, which infuriated people. So I am really curious what the price point would be for, uh, you know, for ESPN uh, nationally and uh, what that appeal would be for people. I think their demographics are older. uh, The ones who still have it on cable. um, And and that has to be somewhat concerning to them. the, the, The wrong end of the, uh, the higher end of the 25 to 54, um, you know, they're going to age out of that. Uh, but uh, it, it all comes down to the price point. And uh, <laughs> there's a certain number, I think, that you can go, you can get to. But if you go past that, uh, it almost feels like diminishing returns where 
you're going to anger so many people that they're just not going to subscribe to it and they're going to stick with um, their status quo, even if their status quo, is, uh, the product is diminished. Yeah, it's that's the. I mean, listen, they're gonna they pay a lot of people to make they're gonna pay a lot of people to make that decision as to what that number is, and then probably tweak it. But that's uh, fascinating. Austin has a team. It was thirty bucks for Nesson. Yeah, yeah, which thirty is, bucks. Which obviously, an ES, yeah, you'd get a lot more. I, I mean, you know, the ESPN direct to consumer package would give you a lot more than than Nesson would. But you know, you also have to be a fan of those sports. Like that's that was magic. Austin, you'll find this funny just as a television nerd. I can't believe that in some ways living in Toronto, I'm going to have an advantage here with TSN, uh, ESPN's sister partner, which I think will always have the big products um, yep. on its airwaves, you know, but uh, whatever, I'll, hopefully the government's not listening, but I'll always figure out a way to get ESPN, you know, <laughs> trust, trust me, trust me on that. All right. The last one here. And again, um, I'm intentionally, you know, I'm not leading. I didn't lead with this because I think by the time literally like, we get we stop taping like things could change um as we are taping this again late thursday afternoon all sorts of um there's all sorts of re board of regents meetings <laughs> around the country when it comes to the current pac 12 schools so like by the time you hear this on monday i don't know maybe washington oregon are members of the big 10 and uh we already know colorado's off to the big 12 and maybe some of these other big 12 uh Pac, uh, Pac-12 teams are, you know, will announce that they're in the Big 12. Um, Austin, your place, Sports Business Journal, covers, like, the, these rights deals, like, you know, has been covering for decades, has been covering them ex extremely well. L we'll play a little prediction game here, okay? Because My the, favorite kind. Yeah, the news is going to change literally by the time it's tonight. If you were going to ask me at, as we're taping this, 3.30 on Thursday, August 3rd, what is going to happen I believe the Pac-12 will be no more. I believe that some of these, I think the Big Ten, even though it doesn't want to be the big bad wolves, which is ludicrous anyway. I mean, they're they're part of the reason why all this is blown up. I think they're going to take some of these schools that, that match up with them academically. I think it's very clear the Pac-12 and Brett Yormark are going to get some of these schools. Um and I don't know what's going to happen to the, you know, a couple of the schools, maybe that, you know, maybe that maybe some of the Pac-12 guys will go to the Mountain West. And all this obviously is a result of um, television. Brett Yormark, to his credit, went went early, got ESPN and Fox to give him that six year, two point two billion dollar television deal. Um, that turned out to be an incredibly, incredibly uh, smart move with foresight and Pac-12. Uh, George Kliakoff clearly has not gotten the dollar figures for their media deal that they wanted. Um, and I think a lot of these schools probably are not very interested in, in jumping into the streaming market with, you know, no guarantees, uh, you know, to where the money that they want to get, uh, because maybe they don't get that kind of subscriber base. So that's my long winded way of saying, Austin, if you had to guess when people start listening to this Monday, where's the PAC 12 going to be on Monday? Um, I think ESPN Films is prepping its next 30 for 30. Uh, the Requiem for the Pac-12 is what I think is going on. I, I do think that Arizona, maybe Arizona State likely end up in the Big 12. I, the, the Big 10 already laid the foundation for a West Coast division by adding USC and UCLA. Why have two schools out there when you can have potentially six or even you know four at the least? So that would make sense. And then, yeah. I, I don't know. Does the Pac-12 stick around by adding schools like Boise and UNLV and San Diego State? Is that is that who Cal and Stanford and 
is that who they want to play? Um, I don't know, but Cal- Washington Cal- State is Cal- on that par, but you know. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Cal and Stanford obviously academically fit into the Big Ten. I don't know how the, what the Big Ten feels about this, and again. You know, you're going to get into a lot of stuff in terms of like, would the television networks be willing to pony up more money if you had more of these schools? Uh-huh. I don't know if the, the schools themselves are going to give, you know, full shares to these schools. But Cal and Stanford, if nothing else, they clearly match up with the Big Ten, right? In terms of these big, um, oh, absolutely, these big gigantic yeah, schools with great academics, schools, field a lot of programs, but great I mean, alumni. The, the story of the Pac-12 is going to be just multiple missed opportunities on the media side, just bad decision-making. And I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but a lot of people were saying it at the time. Um, it's not like everyone, anyone was like, wow, these six regional sports networks you want to launch instead of going with a national deal with NBC, that's a great idea. People were kind of sticking it to Larry Scott back then. And then not taking the lifeline from ESPN five years ago to take control of Pac-12 networks you, the, Pac, the Pac-12 is still around. I don't know if USC and UCLA leave if they have that sort of financial support and involvement from ESPN. Which of your writers wrote that in the newsletter? That was a great lead uh, that I read this. That was Johnny O. Of course it was Johnny O. Oh, it was Oren. Okay. Yeah. So like that was that was fascinating to me that like had that one decision been reversed that the, 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 the Pac-12 decides to, okay, we're going to let ESPN sort of run this. That's the game changer because ESPN would have invested money and they would have tried to make that work. I do remember, again, I don't cover college football and man, realignment. We got so many people at the athletic who like are in love with realignment. Thank God, like that they are. You know, they do a great job. But like, um, I, I like remember, wasn't like Larry Scott at one point talking about like how we're packed, you know, we got the kind of conference that we could be massive like globally. We're going to like own Asia or what? You know what I mean? Like it was, if you look back five years from now, and maybe all these conferences have this, like this delusions of grandeur, but it's incredible to me, like where we are now versus that. All right, Chad, uh, I'm gonna let you have the final word on this. Uh, and I, again, I know that uh, you know, I know New England and Maine is very, very far away from uh, the Berkeley and Los Angeles. But uh, what are, what are your thoughts on this? In a lot of ways, I, I'm still uh, mad about the Big East breaking up. So every realignment since then. Um, I've disagreed with, I, I, I prefer my conferences that he, uh, adhere to a map. And, uh, it just seems, uh, just seems so nonsensical now, but, uh, the mistakes that the, the PAC 12 made along the way are just mind boggling. That's something that's going to have to be revisited. One of those look back, what we could, what could we have done differently? Uh, how did we blow this, um, you know, stories in uh, five or 10 years from now, because, they had their opportunities. And I think back to like, it wasn't that long ago where you had the game you anticipated was that Reggie Bush, my, uh, Matt Liner, USC team late at night. Uh, and and uh, that felt like, uh, felt like the conference in football, college football for a little while. And now it's uh, clearly taken a back seat and it, it put itself in that position. You know, it's, I mean, t- I'm like a fan of Austin. I'm, I, and I know you're going to, you know, you're going to be cold hard here and say, no, no one, no one's thinking like me, but I, I'm a, like, I'm a fan of like the, um, the non big revenue sports. Like I, I love to watch college track and, um, you know, obviously anybody who listens to podcasts knows I covered women's basketball for a long time at sports illustrated. So that's a real sport that I really like. And I watch college softball and lacrosse and all these other stuff. And that's kind of what bums me out. Cause like, I think it's cool to that, like to see Cal and Stanford and, and, you know, UCLA and USC and all these West coast schools, like 
play against each other in these non-traditional sports. And as an East Coast fan growing up, I loved like the late game, the late pack. Pac-10 start with like Keith Jackson like that shit was like really really cool and I get it like it's all about money but I do think something's lost now, You're pro- as the sports business journal guy you're going to tell me stop being romantic right it's it's all about the bottom line I don't have to tell you how much football drives this but do I love seeing when like Oregon State can reel off back to back baseball championships yeah there's something romantic about that and you have so many good Olympic sport schools out there that are competitive and if they go to the Big Ten, though, if Cal is playing Stanford and or Cal is playing Ohio State in soccer, like that's a, those are two pretty big, big programs. And Stanford, you find me an athletic department that top to bottom is better than Stanford. Yeah, which I which I think I would I would think I get it. Like Stanford football is not Michigan football, but I would think if you had a Big Ten and Tony Petiti and those other conferences, how awesome would it be to have Stanford in your conference? I mean, they're you can make the argument they're the best academic institution in the world, uh, independent of their president who just got run. But, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, one of the famous things, if you ever talk to any Stanford grad, like, they go to class, and, like, the person next to them, like, wins a Nobel Prize one day, and the person next to them, like, you know, d- discovers this. So I'm with, I'm with you on that. Sports, though, like, like, nobody pumps out more Olympians than Stanford. 100%. Yeah. Like, their, their, um, their track program, right? Their swimming program. They're just, like, water polo. They're just mm-hmm. good Top at Top to bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. All right. Is there anything else that you guys want to mention before we get out of here? Chad, I, I promised you I'd get you out of here, and I'm, all, I'm coming up on my time of promise here. I got nothing. No, I, I'm, uh, I, I'm I'm glad we hit as many subjects as we did. Yeah, that's the name of my podcast. I've got nothing. Austin, yourself? <laughs> anything? <laughs> no, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting ready for Disney World. i got to help Disney uh, pay for that NBA rights extension. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a generous person. I know that... Uh, I know Jimmy Pitaro and Adam Silver appreciate that. All right. Check out Chad Finn's work in the Boston Globe and online. Check out Austin Karp's work in Sports Business Journal and online. I encourage you to follow both of them. They're excellent. They do. Austin, Chad, as always, thank you very much. Have a great uh, couple weeks if I don't talk to you. Enjoy the the, uh, latter part of the summer coming up. Great to talk, guys. Hey, good talking, guys. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad and Austin for their time. Uh, appreciate Chad in particular. He's uh, on vacation, so uh, good of him to come on. If you like these podcasts, head to the archives. There should be some stuff you like. Just had WWE star Becky Lynch, who was awesome, talking about the art of communication and promotion and how one uses social media. That was great. Andrea Carter of ESPN is a rising star at that place in terms of basketball. Had uh, Paul Tenorio and Alex Silverman of Sports Business Journal on to talk about Leo Messi and the Apple MLS deal. Michael Nathanson, one of the uh, top analysts in the country on how Disney's going to handle ESPN. Had the student journalists at the Daily Northwestern who reported on Pat Fitzgerald and Northwestern football. And then uh, Neil Everett, the longtime and excellent Sports Center anchor, uh, came on to, uh, to discuss uh, what he's uh, hoping to do next. If you like these kind of podcasts, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. Thank you to Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.